Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good evening, Slava. Happy two days after Halloween. Good evening, Jonathan. Indeed. Did you do anything for Halloween? That was fun and exciting and spooky. Play with any toads? I did not play with any toads. I didn't cast any spells, and I didn't go trick-or-treating. So, um, yeah, I lead a pretty pretty boring life. How about you? Did you do anything for Halloween? Any nice restaurants or fun recipes? No. Sadly, I had to sit at home and make sure nobody rang the doorbell and spook my dogs. How do you make sure that they don't ring your doorbell? I put a sign up and I disable the doorbell. Oh. I, I should rephrase that. I make sure nobody knocks at my door and spooks my rescue dogs. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. yeah. I thought about putting caution tape up this year, but didn't actually end up doing it. Just to, like, mm-hmm. get people off my porch. Yeah. Oh, the last couple of times, we locked up the puppy, the one, when we only had one. And then went outside and sat with a bucket of candy and gave him out as kids came by. But then when we got the second dog also a rescue also has anxiety it's just easier to put up a sign and when you put <clears throat> and when you put up a picture of two cute dogs and say they're really scared nobody's gonna ring your doorbell or knock it's worked pretty good for the last few halloweens fair two enough. halloweens to be specific fair enough i don't have a dog so i'll take your word for it but on that note, because we are talking about Halloween, I had one more spooky question for you to finish off the uh, the festivities. All right. Would you rather know the date of your death or the cause of your death? Cause. Why? I feel like if I knew the date, it wouldn't change anything. It would just create... I don't want to say anxiety, because I'm not afraid of dying, but it would just create, uh, what's uh, what's like three levels below anxiety? Um, unease? I'd create a little bit of unease. It would probably lead to disappointment, because I know, just like every other human being on this earth, I wouldn't accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish by the said date, and it would probably just cause unnecessary unease. That's a good word. I guess so. I'd rather know the date. Really? Why is that? I got a lot of stuff to do. That Then at least I can pare the list down and go, you know what? I don't have time for these extra things. It's tomorrow. Yeah, I should be so lucky. <laughs> don't threaten me with a good time. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. I just have a lot of things to do, and it'll it it'll give you a better perspective on like, look, you've got seventeen years left. Okay, good. What are you gonna do with those seventeen years? Oof. Um, good question. Good question. 
Well, I'm definitely going to run up some bills near the end because, yeah. you know, might as well. Um, if you're single. <clears throat> oh, no, no. No, I'll run the bills up. I'll probably get divorced first and then run the bills up. Like, there's a strategy to this. If you know when you're dying, man, there's a, there, you can play the game a little bit differently. Yeah, like going to purge the oh, night yeah. before, going like on a purge murder spree or something. <clears throat> sure, something like that. Okay. Of course, you could tempt fate, and then the reason that you went on the spree and then caused your death was the reason that you had a date. Yep. You know, Monkey's Terminator ball. and Skynet kind of. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I'm thinking, what if you had 20 years to live, mm-hmm. but when you died in 20 years, you died by slowly being eaten by. Evil frogs that fell out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then it well, took you seven hours to die. Seven How hours. How do you feel about that? Seven hours is a long time. Four hours. Let's say four hours. More than I want to die quickly. <laughs> well, right. That's why I want to know how I'm going to die. If somebody tells me, "Well, you're going to live ninety years," but when you're an old man, you can barely run. You know. 7,000 frogs are going to tear you from limb to limb and it's going to take seven hours. You're like, oh, well, that's also un- causing unease right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't sound like a good time. I don't have any problem with frogs, but... Uh, I like frogs. They taste delicious. Taste like chicken. Yeah. I'm glad that you like frogs. You can have my portion. Okay. Leg frogs prepared the right way. With a little bit of white wine or a nice crispy beer. Mm-hmm. mm I believe you. Not for me. You can have the frogs. You can have all the reptile food. I give oh, it to you. You want to hear something funny? <laughs> Speaking of gator tail. Yeah, there it is. There it is. I had a dream last night where <laughs> I was coming home from work. It was prison. And there was just me and the gator. And I was, I was feeling the gator. mighty frisky. I was coming home from work in the dream. I got into a carpool, I think, and I got dropped off at home. Very innocuous dream. Starts out. Then when I get home, I was like, hey, I have to go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, and I'm about to do what you do in the bathroom. And in the mirror, for some reason I have a mirror right behind the toilet in my dream, I see a huge gator tail that's attached to me. I freak out. And I turn into a large alligator, and then the dream ends. I I shit you not. <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't get to in the in the dream. So, yep, I did not get to do anything in the dream except turn into a gator mm-hmm. after a long hard day of marketing. Yeah. Well, so be it. Yeah. <laughs> so be it. Huh. Well, that's a fine transition into. The bulk of our story where we give you an overview, but you know what time it is. Unruly Adventurers, click that subscribe button before we go off on our side quest to make sure that you always experience all of the shenanigans that are Slava and Jonathan and apparently Evil Toads this week on SideQuest. Indeed. And Gator Tales. Well, for one of us. For one of us. And also dreams about gator tails. Yeah. Anyway, For one of us. Why don't you give us a, a rundown of Rainy Season by Stephen King. My pleasure. 
So, Rainy Season is a short horror story by our beloved Stephen Edwin King, first published in the spring of 1989 in an issue of Midnight Graffiti magazine, and later included in our beloved Nightmares and Dreamscapes collection, mm-hmm. which was printed in 1993, printed, which came out in 1993, I believe. And apparently, according to the King of Horror, it ended about a writer's block from which King had been suffering. So that's for the first publishing of this uh, short story. Rainy Season, like many other Stephen King short stories and books, have has been adapted by the artist known as Glenn Chadbourne for the book The Secretary of Dreams, which is a collection of comics based on King's short fiction released by Cemetery Dance Publication in 2006. The audiobook that Jonathan and I listened to was narrated by Yardley Smith, who's been in a couple of adaptations of King's. She has a very interesting voice, so if you ever get a chance to listen to Rainy Season on Audible, also, Rainy Season has been adapted into a few short films. One made in 2017, and I think something in 2019 happened by Fritz Carl and Wolfgang Hupscht. I haven't watched them, but my research has led me to those two tidbits. So that is a brief overview of Rainy Season. Jonathan, you want to give us the plot? Sure. Rainy Season stars two main characters, a husband and a wife, John and Elise, who decide to take a vacation out to a small idyllic town in Willow, Maine, where they rent a house and they show up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, only to be warned, somewhat vaguely, that they need to come back after the next day because it's rainy season, and the locals let them know that there's a storm coming, and there's going to be frogs that fall out of the sky, and they think it's just some sort of sick prank uh, played by the locals. What they don't know is that it's true, and... After they've purchased their groceries and they head back home and they have a nice dinner and a little carousing in the sack, they end up hearing clunk clunk on the on the roof, clunk clunk, and they're like they're playing it, they're getting one over it, pulling the wool over our eyes, and then the husband John gets upset, maybe rightly so, and he goes downstairs, crash, one comes through the window. He's like, why are they throwing stuff through the window? Plot twist. They're not. It was all the truth. And the problem with that is that the husband and wife are devoured by two frogs. Well, eventually two frogs, but it's really a lot of frogs. And they pay the price with their lives. Because the prosperity of the citizens of Willow costs every seven years a husband and wife from outside the town to stay despiting the protest of the people who live there, the locals, to become sacrifices during the rainy season. Right. I thought this was, I'm going to steal your word for it, a quaint little horror story. Don't steal my word. That's my word. I'm going to steal your word. No, it's 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 my word. It's now now our word. No, it's not our word. I'm not sharing. This is the cooperative of SideQuest. I'm not sharing a word with you. 
Well, that was my word. You were right, and I liked it. So I agree with Jonathan. It's a quaint little story. Okay, what's quaint mean? What's quaint mean? It means something that's idyllic, that's a little bit serene, and it's nice and quiet, something that brings up nostalgic feelings. It's that's close. Attractively unusual or old fashioned, and that's what you had in mind when uh, when you said quaint this morning. Yeah, bull fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, it was old fashioned. You thought of old fashioned when you said quaint. Yeah, you don't know anymore because you stole my words. So I didn't get to go first. So yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, uh, that's great. So our quaint little story has been. Often, we're not a couple. And by often, I mean I found a blog post that made this connection, and I found it intriguing. It has been compared to Shirley Jackson short story, The Lottery, an idea that's reinforced by the fact that John, one of the main characters, makes a reference to it as he is leaving the little, well, it's not a bodega. It's a little grocery store general slash store. convenience store, general store. Yeah. When the wife and the man who own it, they're like, hey, guys, you got to leave. Please leave. We don't want you to be inconvenienced by toads. He suddenly found himself thinking of Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery. It's actually the line from the the short story. Mm -hmm. So we also read The Lottery for this just to see what connections there are and why Mr. King might have thrown that line into it. What would you think of that short story? This is like a quest within a quest, a short story within a short story. Of course. And and isn't that how life goes? There's a there's a bigger problem which requires you to solve multiple little problems before you can get back to your big problem. The lottery was interesting. The pace is pretty consistent and there's not a whole lot of answers until the end, but it has a a rising tension. Honestly, more tension than what I felt like was given here in rainy season. And I think I like the lottery better. Although I will say, and this was a complaint I sent you, that the audiobook version is chopped up and it ends in the middle of a chapter. Yeah, it's garbage. It doesn't, like, somebody just didn't put any thought in it. They're just like, cool, I'm going to chop these up by, I don't know, 10 minute increments and just call it good. Which is like, that's not how you organize data and stories. So that was frustrating because I was like, wait, it moved to a new story. Is this like a jump in time or something? And then Slava's like, nope, not related at all. That's a different story. Oh, yep. okay. Which was a little confusing at the front end or back end, I guess. I hate that shit. It just drives me up the wall when people who make products can't just put a little bit of thought into it, two extra steps, one extra step. Well, two extra steps. Dividing it by stories and titling the godforsaken chapters. Oh yeah, they didn't do that either and that was would have been just just great annoying. But anyway, The Lottery is a short story by Shirley Jackson. She was a writer from the early 1900s and this story was published in the New Yorker in June of 1948, I believe. That's not the early 1900s. That's like the mid 1900s. Mid well, it's 2 years before mid. And I thought of quaint as old-fashioned. All right, fine. The story, Shirley Jackson's story, describes a fictional small American community, that's probably quaint. Surely you jest. Which observes an annual tradition known as the lottery. 
which is intended to ensure a good harvest and purge the town of bad omens. And it is what you think it is. There's a lottery, a family gets chosen, then there's a second lottery, a person from that family gets chosen, and then they're killed by the rest of the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's the connection. And that's a pretty strong connection. I think, think King didn't just write that for giggles. No, no, not at all. And I like both short stories. I thought the fact that they were both under an hour read, rainy season was about 40 minutes, this was about 20 minutes, it gets to the point, there's a little bit of tension, more obviously, I agree with you, more tension in the lottery. They're explaining the lottery, there's a buildup, woman is about to get killed, and that's where the story ends. With King, it's a little bit reversed, there's very little buildup. And King spends a lot of time describing the gruesome deaths at the at the hands, I was going to say hands, but at the sharp teeth of the toads of both John and Elise. And then in the end, the tension kind of dies down as the reason for rainy season is explained in detail. Whereas in Shirley Jackson's story, the reason for the lottery is like, well, we want to have good crops, right? Yep, we're going to have the lottery. Let's kill this bitch. Yes. I like the fact that we read both because that kind of gives you an interesting juxtaposition from where of the two stories, and it gives you a little insight, albeit very shallow because we can't get inside King's head. It gives you a little bit of an insight of what King was thinking about, maybe where his head was. He wrote this story as his writer's block broke. Mm -hmm. So what was he thinking about? Obviously, Shirley Jackson, in some sense. I feel like anytime you want to get out of writer's block, and you're, I mean, King, you know, is a prolific writer at this point. This isn't early in his career, right? Like, it's he's had a career, and he's a writer. I feel like the way you get out of writer's block at that point, you go, I need to write a story, and I need to kill a character. Boom. Right? Like, and then it's like, well, how would I kill him? And now you're in it. Like, well, what if they're in a small town? Okay, cool. Well, what if they brought their wife? Oh, okay. But it's not just any killing. And they just, like, expands and you pull the threads from there, right? Yeah. I think it'd be different if he was having a writer's block and he was younger in his career. You know, maybe Carrie just got picked up and this was, like, just after that or something. And he's like, oh, I had writer's block, whatever. But I think because it was kind of mid-career, it's like, oh, I mean, if you ask someone... I want you to tell me a story about death in a small town. Great. Boom. Setting. Action. Boom. Go. Writer's block. Solved. Cured. Come to me for all your cures for writer's block. I will give you quaint answers. Quaint indeed. Let's jump into our story. Let's leave Middle America and Shirley Jackson's lottery behind. Which, side quest, people were so upset by this story in 1948, which is apparently mid-19th century. <laughs> that they wrote in did they stone her to death because that would they be wrote in angry hate mail to her and to the new yorker and people unsubscribed in mass from the new yorker what i found is that both the staff of the new yorker and shirley jackson were perplexed because nothing in the story is gruesome except for a rock hit her in the head, and they were upon her. Those are the most gruesome words that are uttered in the whole 
20 minutes of this short story, right? Well, good for her. It's probably, probably three pages of a magazine, and people went apoplectic about it. Mm. But anyway, I, it doesn't matter. Before the internet, people went apoplectic about things they didn't like. And they would write letters to the editor, which and they people don't do anymore. they would write letters to the editor. Because they don't have editors, they just have YouTube comments. Yep, and social media managers that have to read them. Ugh, don't remind me. <laughs> Goodness. So, let's get into the story. Tell me what you think about this, because this drove me insane. The first time I read it, the fifth time I read it, and this time I read it. Because like we've established in a previous bonus episode, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I've read through it numerous times. I want to say yeah. at least five times. And the sixth time, which would be this, would be for the few short stories that we pulled out of it. So this is my sixth time reading it. And I'm like, man, John and Elise asked some dumb questions. Mm-hmm. Kind of non-thinking questions in the beginning. And I don't know why it pisses me off. It doesn't make me not like the story. It doesn't make me think any less of King. I don't think it's lazy writing or anything like that. But them as characters kind of ticked me off in the beginning. What, do you, what about you? Yeah, I. this is one of the reasons why I was kind of neutral about the story is because the two main characters don't speak to me at all. They don't feel real. They feel like shell characters, right? They don't have any personality. Mm-hmm. They don't have any depth. We don't know anything about their lives except that they're married and they're here on vacation. That's it. We don't know what he does for a job. Nothing. Like college professor. Okay. I believe you. I mean, I'm, if it's one, you know, if it's one drop of a, of a piece of it, what does she do for work? She's married to a college professor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but this is the thing. Like these characters are completely not relatable to me. There's nothing about, there's no humanity there. Right. And, and so that's why I think that, okay, you picked up on the, the asking dumb questions, but for me, it's like, well, there's nothing relatable about these people. They get bent out of shape for no good reason. And they weren't even Karens about it. They were just like, oh, 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 how dare you? Okay, bucko. They didn't do anything. They just communicated information. They didn't even say it offensively. It's not even like they sarcastically said. There's nothing, right? Like, And so I was just like, okay, uh, city people being silly. like, Yeah. With, but, it's, yeah. but you and I have lived in cities. So like, this isn't even justified city, like, city no. center stuff. So that's why I was like, okay, uh, you know, fine. What makes them unlikable or unrelatable is the way King describes the store store owners. And when the woman finally speaks, King says she began her sentence or she began her speech as somebody who has just put down a heavy load and now has to pick it up again. So that's already a lot more depth and a lot more humanity to again to steal your one of your words than john and elise they're like ha ha okay you're a redneck we're gonna go bye now and that's all you get from them and then the question that really sticks out to me every read through is when elise says well how would you know we were coming and to me i'm like can you just put on a little mini amateur sherlock holmes hat and realize this town is a town of probably 100 people, you kind of know, even if it's tangential and maybe in the back of your mind or whatever the word is for it, that you have a friend of a friend of a cousin that that lives here, and you are the outsiders that are renting the home that's the renting home. Why wouldn't the 100 people who live in (laughs) bumfuck Maine not know that you're coming? 
And it's a little thing, and maybe the audience will say, hey, Slava's just nitpicking. And maybe I am, but I think this is a justified nitpick. (laughs) Because it's just... What? Right. And the way they're scared off by just two old folks playing a joke, fine, I'll grant it to you. This is a silly, stupid joke. The way they're put off by it is an overreaction, in in my opinion. Yeah. It seems out of place. And again... I'm not taking away from the writing. I think the story is fine. Mm-hmm. Characters, as far as King, what King put on paper is fine. But I'm jumping into the story, and within the world of the story, I'm like, you guys are being dickheads. It sounds like my complaint that I had about the mist with the neighbor, where it's just yeah. like, this, yeah. this is not a normal, like, you didn't tell me that he got one over on you before or he regularly plays pranks on you or he knows you're coming up from the city so he like flattens your tire like nothing just nothing or or on the reverse like that you're paranoid and you treat everyone like this because you think everyone's trying to get one over on you which is also not the case like we don't have either sides of that coin and so it's just like eh Okay, I mean, I will believe it because it's a story and I'm sure you're going somewhere, but like, if you asked me to read this again, I'd say, meh, I don't want to. Well, I would, but I wouldn't ask you again. Right. But I'll probably read it again in a little bit. So, <laughs> we're going to finish this episode. He's going to, you know what? I really like those frogs. I really like the frogs. They got, they, they, they really just like sunk their teeth into me. Yep. A parallel point to this is. As they're being kind of jerks to this old couple and they're asking the dumb questions, they seem scared too. Because when they go to the restaurant, pick up the groceries that are in the next town, and the next town is booming, unlike Willow, which is all preparing for, you know, rainy season. Mm-hmm. The, the, she, Elise, expresses a lot of fear. And it's like, if these people are just crazy hicks who are playing a prank why do you care why do you care these are not like some kind of crazy mountain people there's no setup in the world of the story right there's no setup for something like cabin in the woods or texas chainsaw massacre where (laughs) it's off all it's off to the point where in no reality is this supposed to feel good the heebie-jeebies you feel are warranted because it's not a kooky old couple telling you about frog rain. It's some one-eyed hunchback monster who's leering at you and telling you something out of, you know, La La Land. Mm-hmm. So why are you scared? They're just a stupid old couple to play the prank on the city folks. I just want to be scared at all. I just want to point out that you're the one complaining about the world building now. It's a short story, but and I don't disagree with you, but you brought it up. Okay. You brought up the world building. Okay. So, yes, there are some issues with the world building. But here's the thing. In the context that you gave us earlier, King's trying to get out of a writing block. Mm -hmm. So if this gets him out of the writing block, then it does its job, regardless of our opinions. You know, it's not his best work. Okay. Absolutely. You know. And listen, and I'm I'm the guy that said I've read it six times, and I'll read (laughs) it again. Yeah. So... I I still enjoy the story. Right, right. I'm just complaining about two things, I guess. Uh, They're valid one, complaints about the world. I yeah. One as a reader outside of the world, and even then going into the world and going, okay, in the world that 
King created in the short story that are still acting like dumbasses, in my opinion. So, right. Well, one good thing, before we move on, one good thing is I know Mainers. I know one Mainer, and I met his parents, so I know three Mainers. The old couple, the way they talk, the, well, King is from Maine, but the narrator really does the accents well. Mm. For, I mean, sure. Small town Maine, old guy, older woman. Yeah. Uh, Yardley Smith. Yardley Smith? Yardley Smith. She does a good job. So there you go. That's that's one good thing about, well, there's more than one good thing, but we just uh, nitpicked on a bunch of stuff. So I felt like I should uh, (laughs) end on a positive note before we (laughs) go on to our next thing. Yeah. Okay. So in rainy season, you got the couple and they dismiss the warnings from the locals as a prank. What do you think that their skepticism says? Like, let's try and let's try and expand here and give King benefit of the doubt, right? What do you think their skepticism says about human nature and tendency to downplay warnings people give us? Oh, we are skeptical by nature. I think human beings are walking contradictions. And I know we talk about worldviews and things we take for granted. In a previous episode, I think in The Mist, yeah, it would be The Mist at this point, we talked about how people are sometimes very arbitrary in what they believe, right? Human beings are walking contradictions. And if you don't learn how to think, it's something covered in the previous episode too, you're going to be this walking contradiction. So you'll take stuff for granted without any warrant to believe these things. You'll just say it as it's a brute fact, which doesn't exist. And at the same time, when faced with something that you think is preposterous, again, based on your presuppositions, you will dismiss it outright with the same veracity, ferocity, as you would claim something that you believe is true without the same amount of evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. My problem here is that, and it gets back to like the character's not feeling real because like, I went on some road trips with some of our New York friends and there's no generic skepticism from from local hicks, right? Like, oh, okay, you tell me, blah, 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 great, fine, whatever. Okay, I believe you. You know, the type of person that this story captures is a type of person that I don't spend any time with. Like, I, I wouldn't spend time with people like this. And And in fact, like, people that I meet that I, like, might be friends with, if they, if they act like this, I'll go, whoa, hey, what are you doing? It's unnecessary. And I'll call them out on it. And then if they don't change, then I go, you know what? We're not meant to be friends because I don't hang out with people like that. So I think that there's just like, that's part of my aversion here too, of just like, I don't stick around that type of human nature, you know, regardless of the danger part, just the human nature part. <laughs> All right. That's a fair point. And I think it segues well into the next question that I have. How do you see the characters justify their town's tradition? And what do you think that says about people's attachment to traditions and maybe fear that's also kind of encompassed in all of this? All right, just to... Okay, it's an interesting question. So just to clarify, you're talking about the farmer and his wife and the townspeople we never meet? Yes. Okay, all right. Because you said characters and there's just a bunch of other characters. And by bunch, I mean frogs and then two people. Um, the other two people. Yeah. <laughs> the one's not What about the dogs? Farts. The dog that farts? The dog that farts continues to fart. Okay. All right. 
So how do I think the characters justify their thoughts on the town's dark ritual to make them prosperous at the... How'd you word it again? How do you view the justification that the farmer and his wife, apparently, give for their town's dark ritual? I don't think that they really justify it well. I think that they are just like, well, we tried, shoulder shrug, and then move on. And that's kind of all that we get. Unlike the lottery, which I know you didn't ask about, but the lottery at least has like the people involved that will receive the the prosperity from it in their crops. They're the main characters. And so I think that based on the fact that the two people who are sacrificed are removed from the uh, the prosperity part of it, it becomes more of a background item than the main point because we're following the people who die. So it really removes our perspective of like, okay, we caught it. It takes a little bit of analysis to go back and go, oh, that's why they died. There's prosperity if they get a husband and wife killed by the frogs who then wash away into a poison. And so I think it, it really loses its kapow because we only see them for the first part of the story and then they just like disappear into the background. That's fair. How does this story compare to the other Stephen King stories you read so far? Are there any recurring motives or themes in his short stories? Because you read about five or six now. Mm-hmm. Death is pretty prevalent in most of them, for better or worse. I'd say there's an element of confusion in a lot of them as well, at least at minimum from one character usually, but oftentimes a few of them. I think that we also get dropped into very different worlds every time. And it's a matter of like, how quickly can we as the reader pick up on what's going on in the world? So those are some of the motifs and themes that I, I've noticed so far with, uh, with King. Each short story is very different because you get dropped into a slice of life of character X or couple whatever. And you kind of have to do some analysis, as you said, to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Like there's a story that I read recently out of the same collection. It's called The Finger, and it's a couple in New York. The husband goes insane because there's a finger in the drain, and the finger gets elongated to the point of absurdity as it comes out of the drain and drives him insane. And he tries to do Drano, he tries to do hedge clippers, all sorts of things to kill this finger. And the sentient, demonic finger ends up driving him mad. Completely different world. It's New York. It's a couple in an apartment. It's not Maine. But the themes are the same. It's death, it's confusion. So I think this is a nod to King, at least for me, where he can take horror motifs and plop them in idyllic Maine mm-hmm. or, or you know, one of the boroughs and write characters, whether or not you like him or care about them or whether or not they project any sort of humanity to where Jonathan or even Slava goes like, yeah, I feel, feel really bad that John and Lee's died or we got something from them that's captivating as characters. Well, the, when you strip that away, that critique away, King still does a good job of just plopping you as the reader into this little world mm-hmm. and making you feel the tension and the unease that Harold, I think is his name from the finger, feels. 
when the finger is trying to kill him or just drive him insane, whether it's just trolling him. Mm-hmm. I feel like I read that story growing up at some point. You might have. You might have seen it uh, on TV because it was made into a little uh, short been that horror too. clip. Yeah. I think from, oh, Tales from the Crypt? I think the Tales from the Crypt did it. Sounds right. Yeah. Because it yeah. sounds super familiar. But yeah, as we're uh, getting to the end here, why don't you tell me some of your likes and dislikes? Well, I'm stealing your word again. I like the quaint part of it, right? It's this little nostalgic thing where you're kind of reading it and like, yeah, I've been on a road trip. I've met weird little hick people. And they said some weird little things because I'm a city slicker and I think they're weird. But it kind of takes you into this little world that is outside your own, right? Mm -hmm. But you've kind of been there, or maybe it was a long time ago. So I like that about it. It's quick, it's dirty, it gets to the point, just like the lottery. Here's what's happening, here's the setup, she gets stoned. Same thing here. They come to town, frogs might come, screw you old hicks, we die because frogs ate us. Mm -hmm. I like that about it, because it's fast-paced. What I didn't like is the beginning with the dumb questions. Mm -hmm. And it's... Just again, sixth time reading it, sixth time going, you're really asking those questions, Elise. What's going on here? What about you? I think it was, it's a very outside the box story. It's an oddity. So, those those two things are kind of nice. That's one of the things I like about this podcast is uh, you introduced me to books and, sh- and shorts that I wouldn't go out seeking and probably wouldn't stumble across. So that's kind of fun, uh, but that's just because mm-hmm. I like uh, variety in life. However, the characters feel like shell of people, and and that just like totally makes me lose any sort of joy for the story at all. Mm. Which I'll I'll just dive into this on my scale of how I rate this story. The plot's a a three because it was unique. The characters are a one, and the world is a two on a scale of five for all those. Uh, for me, I would put plot story, I would give it a four. And, yeah, I'm going to give it a four because I think it's fine. It's not anything extraordinary, but I like it enough to give it a four. Characters, I agree with you, a three. The world, I'm going to go with a three, too, because it's it's Maine. It's a small town. It doesn't matter if it's Ohio or Nebraska. It's a small town. What, do you, what else do you want from it? Mm-hmm. So it's a three. So four three three for me. Well, you didn't agree with me on the characters because I gave it a one and you gave it a three. But uh, you know, did I give it a three? Yeah, F- fine. I'll give. It, I'll stay with my three. That's fine. Um, I just yeah, because I don't know what else to say. I'm not. I'm not, not trying to. It's not quite. I'm not trying to backtrack. Three is good enough. Four three three. There you go. There you have it. Those are the scales. Those are the ratings. How about you guys? What's your favorite Stephen King short, or what's your favorite short story in general? Because. There's one that I remember from, like, 10th grade that I don't know the name of and can't find. So if you can help me find this, it's the story where the character is a house after, like, a nuclear fallout, and the house is, like, an automatic smart house, and it just, like, keeps doing all of its routines. And so you just, like, are living in this atmosphere of a house that is trying to serve its humans, but the humans are dead, and they've been dead forever. So... I don't remember the name of this story, but I remember it being a really good story. And I don't know what it is. And I've tried searching for it through the years when I remember it. But I can't remember it. So, what's your favorite short story? Anyway, that is SideQuest on this fine 
whatever day it is. No, November the 2nd, I think. Third. Whatever Thursday is after Halloween. That's, yeah. Great. Perfect. So, thank you for tuning in. Just remember, hit that subscribe button so you never miss SideQuest.